Good morning, church. It is indeed a pleasure to be with you this morning. New West Community Church sends their greetings. And uh, before we get started, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will turn to God's word. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we could come together to worship you, to lift your name on high, to lay our burdens at the foot of the cross, and to feel the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our lives, even right now. We thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation that is through Christ. We thank you for the gifts of faith and your grace. We thank you for the gift of your scripture, and that it is sufficient for all areas of our life. We pray, Lord, that as we dig into this message of soli Deo Gloria, that you would even give us a glimpse of your glory and your majesty, your splendor. Not because we thrive on that feeling, Lord, but we know that it is from you and we hunger for you. Be with us this morning. Be with me as I try to expound what it means to contemplate on your glory. Thank you for all that you do. And give this time to you. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Sorry, chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I'll be reading from 28, verses 28 to 36. We will be specifically looking into 33 to 36, but I think it's good to give us a little bit of context before we dig into verses 33 to 36. So, starting in verse 28. Hear, O church, the very word of God. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift, given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And this is the reading of God's word. I've been thinking through this topic for at least a week, specifically, and, and, I, and I have to be honest with you, the glory of God is something that, that consumes my thoughts a lot. And I was asking different people throughout the week, my family, friends, if someone was to ask you to describe the glory of God, what would you say? And to everyone that I asked this question, they had to sit and think for a moment. We hear this term, the glory of God, a lot, do we not? We hear it a lot, but we don't often hear it defined or explained. I think a lot of times we understand 
what is meant by the term glory of God. But what is glory? What is glory? Specifically as human beings, specifically as men, do we not quest for glory in our life? We may not say it in those terms because that seems a little antiquated. But do we not strive to be successful in our endeavors, whether that's in home or at work or even at the church? When we look into Scripture, we see multiple perspectives on the glory of God. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah wrote this, Everyone who is called by my name, referring to God, this is God prophesying through Isaiah, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And we would read in the Psalms, in fact, the Psalms contain so many references to the glory of God. It could be called the glory of God contained in one book. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. So we see that creation exclaims and proclaims the glory of God. We would even see that the glory of God is revealed in the Incarnation, which I will unpack a little bit further for us later on. But Charles Hodge would say this, is that the end of creation, therefore, is not merely the glory of God, but the special manifestation of that glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As he is the Alpha, he is also the Omega, the beginning and the end. And some have remarked in regards to the glory of God that they, they, they believe that the glory of God refers to his consummate beauty, the totality of his perfections, they would say. Others have said that God's glory refers to his reputation, his splendor, his honor. In fact, some would say that his glory had a weightiness to it, not just in word or in thought, but an actual weight that you could feel. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody where you might have felt that? I have, a few times. One of them is J.I. Packer. Just to be in the same room with him, I felt a weightiness. Not because he had a, a, a divine glory about him, but just knowing what he had done and where he had been and the influence he had on my life. Just to sit in the same room with him was awe-inspiring to a degree. My definition for you this morning is not my own. I borrow it from somebody else. But I tried to encapsulate it down into one sentence. and, And here it is. The glory of God is the public manifestation of God's holiness. His glory is the public manifestation of His holiness.
And so when we come to this term this morning, soli deo gloria, what do we mean by soli deo gloria? Well, it means to be to God alone be the glory. Soli deo means God alone. Gloria, the glory. And if we were to dig into some church history, we would understand that this, this term, soli deo gloria, was really the motto, the heartbeat of the whole Reformation. And in fact, if you were to go back and listen, which I hope you will, from the first message up until Pastor Jack's message last week, I think you will find woven into every one of those messages an understanding and even an application that all of it is to the glory of God alone. The faith that we have to believe is a gift from God. The grace that is to be found in Christ is based on the mercy of God alone. Scripture given to us alone points to Christ and is the sole foundation for our life. And all of it points to the glory of God. And even Christ himself, in his incarnation, is the ultimate display of God's glory in creation. Indeed, Luther's own theology of glory consisted of two interwoven tapestries that would display God's character, who he is, and his action, what he does. So for Luther, God's glory was about not only who he is, but also what he does. And if we were to look at some texts outside of Scripture, like the Westminster Confession, the very first question in that confession is, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. The Heidelberg Catechism, if you're familiar with that, <clears throat> question 51 says, how does this glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? Answer, first, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and keeps us from all enemies. So you see, his glory isn't just about his reputation, it's about what he does. The Savoy Declaration says this in chapter 2, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them. I'll come back to that a little bit later. Again, in our own London Baptist Confession, 1689, <clears throat> there is no specific section on the glory of God, but it says this in chapter 2 about God. It is he who works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. So through this message, I want you to remember three things. That there are guideposts for us to begin to understand God's glory whether it's your first time you're running into this, this concept of the glory of God, or whether it's your hundredth time contemplating the glory of God, I would hope that we would remember three things. That God's glory is about his presence, his holiness, and his power. Now we turn to Romans chapter 11. 
when we look at the context of, of this little section, verses 33 to 36, and to go back into the context, which we won't spend a lot of time in, we have to go back right to chapter 9, which I must confess with some sadness is skipped over by a lot of pastors today. Because either they're afraid or they just don't believe in the sovereignty of God in the saving of human beings. In fact, I was at a church a long time ago when I was a young person. And I was excited that our pastor was going through the book of Romans. And he literally skipped chapter 9. Did chapter 8, chapter 10, 11, 12. I asked him, well, why did you skip chapter 9? Oh, too much controversy. Hmm. The context for us in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is about the mystery of the gospel in Christ. Specifically when we look at chapters 10 and 11, the mystery of the gospel is that it doesn't only include the Jews, but the Gentiles have been included in that gospel. And that's not a new thing for us, because we would look back in the Old Testament and we would see, yes, the the Hebrew people, they were specifically chosen by God and they were rescued by God out of Egypt. But they weren't the only ones who were to experience the presence of God. Sojourners, non-Jews who wanted to come and worship were allowed to come and worship. They were not excluded. There were some restrictions, yes, But God wanted the Gentiles to worship him as much as he wanted his Israelites to worship him. And so the mystery of the gospel is that we Gentiles have been included into this salvation. In fact, I think we find chapter 11 a little little surprising if we thought about what Paul is writing here in the sense that God has taken some of the branches from Israel and broken them off and has grafted in wild branches to the cultivated ones. Now, metaphorically, he's saying that God has hardened some hearts of those who are of Jewish and, and of Israel for a period of time to allow those Gentiles whom God has called to come and be grafted in. And even that has a purpose. And God will use that to stir up a desire in the nation of Israel for for Jews to return to God through Christ. It's it's awe-inspiring. And no wonder the Apostle Paul in verse 33 just begins exclaiming in almost a doxology of its own and and almost a, a praise or a hymn of its own and saying, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. That he has done these things to include Gentiles into the promises given to the Jews. We look at verse 33 and he says, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge. And the depth here literally means an extreme point on a scale of intent. If I could put it another way, it's unfathomable how deep these attributes of God are. His riches and abundance of resources, which go beyond the norm of people's experience or expectation. And even His wisdom 
in the broadest range of capacity to know and understand is how we would apply that word in our context. But when applied to God, he is infinite in his wisdom. And in knowledge, it's not just what he knows, it's how he employs that knowledge. You see, wisdom and knowledge often go together. We read about wisdom and knowledge a lot in Proverbs. It doesn't do us any good just to know how to drive. We need to do the driving itself, right? All four of my kids had to get a license. It wasn't good enough for them to just pass the exam. They had to put that into practice. They had to do it. And to a certain extent, I think we see that reflected in James in his small rebuke to the church that he was writing to and saying, you know, you believe, that's great. So do the demons. So belief is is great, but belief does not accompany works pouring out of that faith. James says our faith is dead. It's just a pure knowledge. It's not wisdom. And here the Apostle Paul says, oh, the depth of his riches, wisdom, and knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. And I love these these next few quotes from the Old Testament. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known? Who's come to understand the mind of God? Who has knowledge to perceive the depths of God? I am not a theologian by training. I'm a theologian who, who does his best. And even I know, in my short, little, small, little package of knowledge of God, know that there's so much more to know. I will not, I will not plumb any depth of it in my, in my life here on earth. But there are some things that I can know about God. And those things astound me and bring awe to me. Knowledge to perceive and what can be known. Who is known? The mind of the Lord. The mind. A particular way of thinking. Who could really discern God's particular way of thinking? To feel, discern, to judge what God does and how he does it and when he does it. And another rhetorical question. Who has been his counselor? Who's been any, is there anyone who has given God advice We've seen Job try to do that. And God answers and says, okay, you want, you want to have a conversation with me? Gird up, because I'm coming. And then we'll have a conversation. And Job was silent. It's almost like when I would poke my dad for answers he says, you, you, don't, you don't want me to answer that question. No, I do. I keep poking, keep poking. He says, okay, now I'll give you the answer. Sit down. He gives me the answer. And I didn't want to know the answer. But I knew. But who has given God advice? We need counselors, don't we? We, we have friends that we go to, family members that we go to, and ask for help, ask for wisdom, ask for, like, what do I need to do in this situation? 
right? We, we do that all the time. I, I hope we do that all the time. I hope we don't make those decisions in a vacuum. We have a need for many counselors. Because we can't possibly think about all the contingencies and outcomes. Right? We try to. Plans A, B, C, D, E, F. Right? Maybe we stop at B and C because it's just too much to think about. We try to figure everything out. We try to take everything to its logical end. But we never have all the information. And for some of us, that's okay. And for some of us, that really bothers us that we can't get all the information. You and your friends and your family can never come to every logical conclusion of every contingency and outcome. And please don't take this the wrong way. You're just not that smart. Even collectively, we're not. But God is. And we should be saying, Amen, hallelujah to that. And you see, Paul doesn't leave us here with these rhetorical questions. Who's been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? He was in verse 36. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. From him means he's the, he's the source, the activity, the state. Through him means he's, he's the causative agent of these things. Think back over the last four weeks of sermons that you've heard. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone. From him, he's the source. Through him, he's the causative agent. To him means with respect and reference to him. From him, through him, to him. Are most things? No, that's not what Paul says. All things. All things. All things. Great and small. Narrow, wide. Shallow, deep. All things are from him, through him, and in reference to him. I would do a bit of a disservice if I didn't touch on the omniscience of God before we started talking about the glory of God. And let me take a few minutes to talk about God's omniscience if I can try to encapsulate it. Because again, I was in a room with J.I. Packer and, and somebody asked him to explain the Trinity and everybody kind of, kind of laughed a little bit. And he's like, I can't. And then he went on for 30, 35 minutes to explain the Trinity. So let me, let me try to encapsulate God's omniscience for us in a few minutes here. Omniscience is a Latin term, omnis meaning all, and scientia meaning knowledge, all knowledge. So this literally means that God has all knowledge. Think about this for a second. Nothing surprises him. There is nothing outside of his knowledge. He doesn't learn new things. Nothing takes him by surprise. He doesn't get confused. He knows every angle, option, contingency. Every one of them. 
He also knows himself completely. There's nothing new about him that he needs to learn. Quite unlike us, right? I am still learning things about me. I'm learning things about my wife. I've been married to her for 27 years. There's still things that we are learning about each other. God never learns something new, especially when it comes to himself. God knows all other things, past, present, future. And he knows you perfectly. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that even the hairs on your head are numbered. Have you thought about that? Now, in my life, that number is going down. But he still knows every one of them. That's how intimately God knows me. And there are still things through his word and through the preaching of his word and through Christian friends and mentors that God reveals to me about myself. God's omniscience consists of three important components for our assurance. Do you hear that? For our assurance. There's wisdom. He knows all things, and he always makes the right decisions. He never says, oop, got that one wrong. Let's try again. There's power in his omniscience. Because God knows all things, all his commands come to fruition. Not one of his promises fail. All his plans have a purpose. Even the things that you're going through right now, there's a purpose for them. And in his knowledge, not like I said earlier, nothing surprises God. And that means that God is the only one who can bring you peace. Because he knows the beginning to the end. Nothing confuses God. This means that he's the only one who could bring you security. And there's nothing new for God to learn. And this means that God is the only one who can be trusted with your life. He's the only one who can be trusted with your life. Both now and for eternity. But turning to the glory of God... The glory of God is communicated in certain scriptures, like I've already read. We would find in the letter to Timothy, Paul says this, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And the church says, Amen. And at the end of that same letter, Paul says, Who alone has immortality? He's referring to the Lord Jesus, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor, listen, of His holiness. Psalm 115, verse 1 says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And you heard it this morning, right up on the screen. I saw that and went, oh, that's, that's a verse I was going to use this morning. Hallelujah. <laughs> First Chronicles, chapter 29. 
near the end of David's life. And he has this prayer in public. He says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. That's King David. The greatest king that Israel's ever had. Man for God's own heart. Many failures, yes. Shortcomings, yes. But his love for the Lord was unsurpassed. And at the end of his life, as he's about to transfer the kingdom over to his son Solomon, he says this, greatness and power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, all yours. All yours. The glory of God is complete and lacks nothing. Paul says it here, from him, through him, and to him. That's a circle. Comes from him. He's the means. He's the agent. And it's always in reference to him. We cannot add or subtract anything to his glory. His glory is complete. The glory of God is comprehensive. It encompasses all things. Like I said earlier, it's reflected in creation. With the pinnacle of creation being man and woman. And the pinnacle of man and woman being Christ. One theologian says this, that the pinnacle of beauty, the beauty toward which all creatures point, is God. God is highest beauty because in his being, his absolute oneness, measure, and order, there is nothing superfluous in him. There is nothing that is not needed in him. Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, said this, that in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, listen, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. We even see his glory exercised in mercy over judgment. I would even argue we see his glory exercised in judgment. But God's glory is never more brilliantly displayed when he overrules evil with good. Amen? Or turns rebellious hearts of stone into obedient hearts of flesh. When someone's life is transformed by the power of God, as a manifest glory from God. Because only God could do that. That's what we pray for. In our church last week, we had the privilege of listening to three testimonies of men getting baptized. And in every one of them, the glory of God was on display in slightly different ways. But it was unmistakable. I don't know about you, but baptism services are my favorite services of any service ever. Even in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, listen, there's no sun. Why? Because the glory of God provides the light. If you don't believe me, look it up in Revelation chapter 20. There's no need for the sun anymore. Why? Because God's glory provides the light. His glory. Remember those, those guideposts? 
that I ask you to remember? His presence, his holiness, his power. His presence displayed in Exodus. God on top of the mountain, right? Fire, smoke, thunder, earthquake. Tell the people, don't come close to the mountain or I will break forth in judgment upon them. But you, come talk to me, he says to Moses. And then after the building of the, of the tabernacle and all its instruments and all its, its components, in Exodus chapter 40, God fills the temple with his presence. So much so that Moses and Aaron can't even enter because the weight of his glory is there. And in his holiness, you remember that Moses asked, please Lord, just let me see your glory. And God refuses. He says, no, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand over you and I will cause my goodness to pass by you. And you can have a look at my back, but you cannot see me face to face. Another area where we see the glory of God on display in Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah's vision of God on his throne. What do the angels sing? They don't sing glory, glory, glory. They sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These angels were created to do nothing else but to sing glory and praise to God in his temple. And when Isaiah sees that, his only recourse is to say, woe is me. He pronounces a curse upon himself because he understands that he's sinful and he has just seen the most holy, glorious God. And in his power, we see in Luke chapter 1 that the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Gabriel says to Mary. We see God's glory on display when the angels show up where the shepherds come. And the whole sky is filled with the glory of God. And then we see here in Romans chapter 11 how God works the salvation of those who are His. Why? For His glory. For His glory. So how do we live in this soli deo gloria? We live in such a way that we bring the worship of Him into every area of our life, not just here Sunday mornings, not just for a couple hours, but especially tomorrow morning when you go to work or you get up to make breakfast for your family or whatever you're doing tomorrow, remember to do it all for the glory of God. Grow in your gratitude of God's grace shown towards you. God has been merciful to you and gracious to you. He's granted you salvation in Christ. He's given you the gift of faith to believe. He's given you the Holy Spirit to seal you for the day of redemption. The Spirit who resides in you. Paul in 1 Corinthians would say that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's powerful. It's awe-inspiring. It may even bring you to tears. Because you know how sinful you are. 
And how can God dwell here? And it's only through the grace and mercy of God through Christ and His shed blood for you on the cross to cover you that God says you are clean. I give to you the righteousness of my Son and I adopt you as my own. Lastly, embrace the Lord Jesus as your only hope, your only Savior, your only stronghold in times of trouble. These last few weeks have had us work through the five solas. And it's that last word, sola, that makes this series so important. And I hope it has been very clear that in the proclamation of all of these solas, that your eyes have been opened to the mercy and grace and the power and the majesty of God. In doing that, would you stand with me to sing the doxology? There's probably no better way to end the sermon today than to sing the doxology.